as I said, I came back from Nepal. I came back Wednesday night, but for some reason, that jet lag is hitting real hard this weekend. I fell asleep at a dinner party last night. My wife loved that. And then this morning, it was like 4.30, and I was up, like, like up. My favorite part is when I started to pour myself coffee and didn't realize the coffee cup was upside down. And then, <laughs> so LOL, that's where I'm at. Um, and we'll see how this goes. Uh, today, we're continuing a series called Signs of Glory. And we're looking in this series at seven mighty deeds that Jesus performed. performed. Already starting. <laughs> Say words right. Um, these were signs that were witnessed firsthand by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends, who wrote them all down for us. And these seven mighty deeds are miracles. Uh, but John doesn't call them miracles. Instead, he calls them signs. And signs in the Gospel of John is a technical term referring to deeds which point beyond themselves to a much greater reality. And these signs, like water into wine, or the healing of the Roman soldier's son, or the healing of the paralytic by the pool, uh, these signs, they point us toward the glory of Jesus. And the word glory, it means illumination. It means the essence of God's being. It means the weightiness and significance of who God is. And so Jesus, he illuminates the face of God. Jesus reveals the essence of God's character. And Jesus is meant to be the weightiest, most significant person in the lives of his followers. And all of these signs, they reveal the glory of Jesus. And we just heard read a story about another sign that Jesus performed. And some of us were new to the Bible, we're new to Christianity, we're new to the New Testament. Uh, these stories are new to us. And even if we've heard them a bunch of times before, sometimes they're very hard to believe. And when I come across a story like this in the Gospels, there are two questions I ask myself. Two questions. First, what genre of literature am I reading? Like, what's the intent of the author? Is the author weaving a myth or creating incredible stories for instructive purposes like a fairy tale or, you know, Aesop's fables? Uh, is the author writing poetry or proverbs like wisdom sayings? Or is the author intending to report what he or she believes actually happened? Is this reportage or fiction? And I want to show you the language John uses in one of his letters in the New Testament, not the Gospel of John, but one of the letters he wrote. Uh, he pens these words. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So he says, his intent is to report what he saw, to report what he witnessed. I I'm telling you, he says, what we experienced together. In the Gospel of John, he pens these words. He says this right at the end of the Gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life 
in his name. So John says, hey, I saw Jesus do a lot of miracles, a lot of signs. I've chosen to report these signs so that you may believe in Christ. And so the intent of the author is to report and pass on what he experienced. And so this is a form, it's meant to be a form, the Gospels are meant to be a form of historical reportage or ancient biography. That's the genre. And because the eyewitness reportage contains miracles, I have to ask myself a second question about the possibilities of the universe. This is the crux of the matter. When you come to the New Testament for the first time, when you're reading about miracle stories, it really forces you to confront the question about the possibilities of the universe. So imagine if in my hands I had a sealed envelope and an open envelope. With an open envelope, I can reach in and fiddle around with the contents. I can add stuff, take stuff out. In a closed envelope, I can't. It's sealed from outside intervention. And it's not a perfect picture, but here's the question we all have to ask and answer. It's the question every thinking person has to ask and answer. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. And it's this question. Do we believe the universe is like a sealed envelope? Or do we believe it's like an open envelope? Is the universe a sealed envelope, a closed system of causes and effects that doesn't allow any alteration of natural laws, even for a moment, even by the author of creation? Or is the universe like an open envelope of cause and effect and predictable processes, but with the possibility that God may surprise us and reveal his presence in unusual ways? And we can't make the mistake of thinking that the closed envelope is the modern view and the open envelope is the ancient view. As C.S. Lewis you know, once wrote, he said, please do not think that one of these views was held a long time ago and that the other has gradually taken its place. Wherever there have been thinking people, both views turn up. Now the Bible says the universe is an open envelope because God exists and God's at work, sometimes in surprising and unusual ways, right? If you believe the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you can believe every verse after that. To say that God exists or that God created the universe, but God can't perform a miracle is like saying, you know, God can write a 30-page letter to put in the envelope, but he can't move a comma in that letter. If he can do one, he can do the other. And so the Bible says God's sometimes at work in very surprising, unusual ways. And this series is in part an invitation to live in light of that reality. And so for the rest of our time, I want to give you two insights about the story and then apply it to our lives. Two insights and then apply it to our lives. That's the structure. First insight. Uh, this story has some Old Testament echoes that provide clues to the glory of Jesus' identity. Clues that are easy for us to miss, but people immersed in the symbolic world of the Old Testament, like the original audience, they would have picked up on these things. And I want to help us see them. And the first clue takes us back to the Exodus narrative and the person of Moses. 
And so if you're new to the Bible, just think Prince of Egypt. Maybe you've seen that movie where Moses liberates uh, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And we know that John wants us to think of the Exodus narrative because the story here comes on the heels of a conversation about Moses. And right at the start, you heard Dan read it, he adds, the author, another intentional detail by telling us that this happened before Passover. So he wants us, comes right out of, you know, talking about Moses, and then he mentions this detail of the Passover. So he wants us to think of the Passover. Now, in the Exodus, God uses Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And Moses performed signs, and a great crowd followed him. And then the Israelites find themselves in the wilderness, tired and hungry. And they complain about the lack of food, and so God sends manna, which in the Hebrew language means, what is it? But it was bread-like in its appearance. And so the idea is that Moses looked up in prayer, and bread comes down in provision to feed the crowd. Now in this story, that takes place right before the Passover, the people find themselves in the wilderness without food. And Jesus looks up to heaven in prayer, and bread miraculously comes down in provision. We have bread being provided for God's people miraculously in the wilderness. Sounds familiar. It sounds a bit like Israel in the wilderness being given miraculous bread. And what does this mean? Well, it would suggest that Jesus will be like a new Moses. That Moses in Deuteronomy 18, he talked about a prophet greater than himself coming in the future. And here Jesus is fulfilling that promise and bringing about an even greater rescue as the Messiah. He will lead a new exodus to redeem God's people from, you know, the pharaohs of sin and death. And, you know, he will lead his people to the promised land, God's new heavens and new earth, and provide spiritual bread to sustain them until that day. And the people understand something like this is going on. That's why they say at the end of the story, surely this is the prophet. Not a prophet, but the prophet. The prophet promised by Moses, who will be even greater. Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And his exodus will be accompanied with signs and wonders greater than Moses ever performed. No wonder they call him the prophet and try to make him a savior king. You're one greater than Moses who's arrived. We want to follow you. Second insight. We've seen throughout this series, Jesus' miracles are called signs. They always had theological significance. They weren't random. They weren't sloppy displays of power to simply show off. The miracles were signs that pointed not only to the glory of Jesus, but to the nature of God and the nature of his kingdom. And in God's future kingdom, when it's fully and finally realized, you see a picture of it in Revelation 21. In God's future Kingdom, people don't get sick, and people don't starve. So Jesus heals bodies and fills bellies. 
And Jesus' signs are a foretaste of God's future. Jesus' miracles always brought God's promised future into our painful present. That's a good way to think about it. All of his signs are a promise to our hearts that the world we all want and long for is coming. A world of wholeness and hope and love and healing. A world reconciled to God and one another. A world of abundance and plenty rather than scarcity and want. And this miraculous meal is simply a foretaste of God's coming kingdom where there's more than enough for all. It's a signpost. That's the second insight. But I want to press more deeply into the details as we apply this to our lives. And so let's apply this story. That's always awkward. I really just want like a, like a handle or like a table, but... No, I can't make it happen. So I want you to know that we still believe, this is kind of a bridge between what I just said and the application, okay? But I want you to know that we still believe as a church that God is in the business of miracles, signs, and wonders. Like the New Testament's not just a record of what God used to do. It's a record of what God still invites us into. Like just last week in our small group, video, Jeremy told the story of praying for a young man who was not a Christian after a church service. I don't know if you saw this, if you're part of small groups, maybe you did. Uh, But this guy lost like his sense of taste and smell when he was sucker punched in the back of the head in a bar fight. And so his mom brought him to church and Jeremy after the service just prayed for him. It was like right before a potluck. And so he prays for this guy and the guy was instantaneously healed. He regained his sense of taste and smell. And it was a potluck, and so the guy went wild just running around, tasting all the different foods and all, right? And Jerry's like, whoa, okay. That's a healing miracle. Jesus still heals bodies. And just like in the Gospels, it's not always and it's not everyone, and we don't know why. But he did it then, and he does it now. And Jesus can still multiply meals. In 1995, Heidi Baker arrived in Mozambique, one of the poorest countries in the world with her family. And eventually her family found herself in charge of, or found themselves in charge of 80 orphans. And they were stretched beyond their means again and again, but God continually provided for them. And eventually a church was planted, hundreds of people came to the Lord, uh, but they experienced very real opposition and conflict that led to this one really desperate moment in their ministry. Uh, They lost everything because of government opposition. And there was no place for them to go, no food to eat, and they still had 80 hungry mouths to feed, plus their own. And so a friend from the American embassy came with chili and rice for them and their children. And they prayed over the pots of food and told the 80-plus children to sit down. And everyone ate and was full. That's one of many miracles God did. That Jesus still fills bellies miraculously. And for whatever reason, just like in the Gospels, it's not always and it's not everywhere, but he did it then and he does it now. The New Testament is not just a record of what God used to do, it's a record of what God still invites us into. Our world is an open envelope, and our lives are meant to be as well. So when it comes to this story, how did it all start? 
Well, if you have your Bible open, you can just look back. I'm going to keep referencing it. But in the story, you can tell that Philip and Andrew, the disciples, they don't really know what to do. Like, they see the crowd, people are hungry, and they're like, we don't have the money, Jesus. We don't have the resources. Uh, They recognize the need is overwhelming. But they bring what is there to the attention of Jesus. There's a word there for all of us. They go, I don't know what to do. The need is overwhelming, but they bring what is there to the attention of Jesus. Ever been there? Like so often we don't know what to do. There doesn't seem to be a solution, but we still bring what is there to the attention of Jesus. That's prayer. That's what we sometimes do in prayer ministry. After the message, we say, God, my life is a bit of a mess. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. Can you help? And we ask someone to join with us in that prayer. They bring what is there to the attention of Jesus, not knowing what he'll do. And look at how it unfolds in verse 5 and 6. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I like that note. The only way John, the author, knows that is if he had a debrief with Jesus. It was like, hey, did you, when you said that to Philip, were you, it's just a test, you knew what you were going to do? And Jesus, I imagine, winks at him and says, I knew, I knew what I was doing. And then John's like, I'm going to put that note in, it's fun. And so, you know, Jesus asked Philip a question to test him because he knew what he was going to do. And I think it was a test of, like, remembrance. Like, Philip, do you remember the story we celebrate during the Passover? Do you remember what God has done in the past? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that kind of remembrance. And then second, it's almost like, hey, do you still doubt who is standing beside you after what you've seen? Do you not yet realize I can do what no one else can? And then you see how Andrew steps in and he brings what is there to the attention of Jesus. Look back at the text. It says another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves, barley being the bread of the poor in this day, and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? I love this detail. Four times the story is recorded in each gospel. Only one time this boy is mentioned. And I'm assuming that Andrew didn't tackle the boy and steal his lunch. I think that's safe as an assumption. I'm assuming the boy freely surrendered his food. But why did he need to? Like, why doesn't, just, you know, why doesn't Jesus just conjure up some bread? Like, remember when Daryl preached, right? Like, the ingredients don't have to be there for Jesus. Like, he didn't need the grapes for the wine. So he didn't need the grain either. Why doesn't Jesus just make bread and fish out of nothing? I think it's because there's a principle here. We bring what is there to the attention of Jesus, and then Jesus invites us to participate in what he wants to accomplish. Jesus invites us to participate in what he wants to accomplish. You give them something to eat, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. I think there are needs in the world, or better yet, needs right in front of us, where we're wishing 
or waiting for someone to do something. And Jesus might be saying to us, you give them something to eat. Like, I know the magnitude of the need is intimidating. Let me worry about that. What's in your hands? You give them something to eat. The obstacles are huge. The need is overwhelming. Let me worry about that. You give them something to eat. It's like, I'm a little person with a little meal. That's enough. That's enough. All the biggest things God has done in the world have started with nothing or something small. All the biggest things God has done in the history of the world have started with nothing or something small. Creation started from nothing. Just God. New creation started with something as small and vulnerable as a baby in the womb of a poor teenage girl. The kingdom of God is like a very small, a tiny mustard seed that grows and grows and grows into a tree big enough to provide food and shade and restoration for the nations. All the biggest things God has done in the world have started from nothing or from something, you know, very small. All I have are five pieces of bread and two fish. That's not enough in our hands. But it's enough if given into the hands of Jesus. And you notice in the story that Jesus makes more than enough. Everyone ate as they wanted, and there was bread left over. Listen to one Bible commentator. When Jesus supplies, it's never too little. He never runs out. Jesus loves to go above and beyond not only what we can ask, but what we can even think, Ephesians 3.20. Jesus has never yet run into a problem he can't solve. No wine at the wedding, no problem. No food in the wilderness, no problem. No life in the tomb, no problem. When you follow Jesus, you never reach a dead end. When you follow Jesus, you never reach a dead end unless he's put it there. And if he's put it there, it's not really a dead end. It's just a redirection. And that's very good news. I spent 10 days in Nepal uh, seeing the work that Ally Global does with survivors of human trafficking. And 30% of their work is uh, prevention, 70% is restoration and aftercare, which extends for years. And the scope of their work is remarkable. Uh, they have five safe homes, four girl homes, one boy home. They have a school, a counseling and tutoring center, a bridal shop and hair salon. That was my favorite thing we saw. Um, a working farm. All of these things are staffed mostly by young women who years ago were rescued from trafficking, grew up in the homes, and then entered back into society. And I talked to so many girls currently living in the homes, and they had such a hope for the future. Like they talked about going to college and studying business or nursing or computer science or medicine. And it's not a pipe dream. It's realistic because these girls are brilliant and courageous and motivated. And sometimes people just need a bit of help out of a horrible circumstance, which is the small part ally plays. But there are also examples for these girls to look up to. There are women who used to live in the homes who've gotten degrees in nursing and business and architecture. I met them. They now work in offices in the city or they, they work in the homes with younger girls. 
And so the scope and the impact of this work is amazing. And the work in Nepal that Ally supports was started by a couple, Silvio and Rose. And like so many of these stories, they had little money. And it was a very small beginning with real opposition and a great, great need. And you could imagine them saying, I don't know what to do, but I'm bringing this situation to your attention, Jesus. Here's what's in my hands. And now over 600 girls have gone through the homes. Silvio has walked over 170 of these women down the aisle at their wedding. He's been that father figure. So beautiful. And so they had their their five loaves and two fish in the face of a multitude. And isn't that the way it always is? This is what I've got, Jesus. It doesn't look like enough. He's like, don't worry about that. Just give it to me and let me break it and bless it and multiply it for my glory and the good of others. If what you had in your hands looked like enough, people might get confused about who is actually accomplishing the work. And so it's like, hey, I have, I have a little time to give. Not a lot. But I have a little time. How could I give it? I could give it to serving youth in the church or the city. I could give it to learning about needs in the world. I could give it to intercessory prayer over certain situations and circumstances. I could give it to writing encouraging notes to those who are living alone in senior homes. I could give it to investing and creating intentional communities in the city. I could give it to that friend who's going through a hard time. I could give it back to myself by spending restorative time with Jesus, the lover of my soul, because I'm so tired from doing so many other things. That's sometimes the danger of giving a list like that when I talk about time as our most valuable commodity. Once we give it, we can't get it back. But I have a little time. Some of us think that always means adding things. Sometimes it means subtracting things and reframing the way we think about what we're doing. God, I'm inviting you into this. Here's what's in my hands. Here's the time I have. Multiply it. Use it for your glory. I could give that time and watch what God can do with a little. A little time surrendered into his hands. What's in your hands? I have a little bit of money. Not a lot, but a little. I could surrender it into his hands. Like during this month of generosity, we're supporting these partners doing amazing work. There are countless stories of hope and redemption and new life represented by these partners, these ministries. The the life change is real. I saw some of it up close. And a lot of it's been made possible by people giving what was in their hands and God multiplying it. Sometimes a lot, sometimes a little. And then God does what only he can do. He does the miracles of transformation in the hearts and lives of people. We partner with God, giving what is in our hands, trusting him to multiply the impact. And here's the thing. I don't have to give anything. Time, energy, money. I get to choose. I get to choose. 
Like the two constraints in life are not death and taxes. Really, they're, the two constants are, are death and choices. I get to choose. The boy didn't have to give up his fish and loaves. The disciples didn't rob the kid. They would have asked. The boy got to decide. God won't force us. He only invites us. I can live like the universe is a closed envelope. The boy could have kept his food to himself. But I wonder, I wonder if there's always a cost to that. Like in this story, the boy could have kept a meal. But he would have missed a miracle. Instead, he was open-handed and he got to be a part of what Jesus wanted to do. He was a part of something bigger than himself. And that's what I want for myself. It's what I want for my kids, my wife, and all of us as a church. I don't want to miss out on what God is doing in the world because my heart and my hands are closed to what he wants to do. This boy got in on a miracle. And so did his mom, who probably packed his lunch. And so praise God for moms. Amen. Let's pray. Um, No. One more story. (laughs) I test things out on you guys, and then in my head I go, don't do that next time. Uh, (laughs) Sadly, this is what goes online and to the internet. Um, I asked permission uh, from the head of Ally if I could share this. Um, When I was in Nepal, I met a young girl. She couldn't have been more than five. Very cute, very smiley, like radiant is how I would describe her. And afterwards, I heard her story, which I can't and won't share with you, but it was hard to hear. And the last night we were there, we had this farewell party. And all the girls and a few boys and some workers gathered around us and prayed for us. And this little sweet girl sat down beside me and placed her hands on me. And with everyone else, started to pray for me in Nepalese. And I rarely get emotional, you know, in the moment. Uh, Chris from the village church was bawling the whole time. Uh, But he cried a lot on that trip. Um, I remember thinking, this is very powerful. Uh, But in reflecting on it back home, you know, the tears came a bit because something about that moment broke my heart wide open afresh. Like a little girl from another part of the world with real hardship in her past placed her hands on me and prayed for me. She gave me what she had at that moment. And what she gave to me seemed small. But I will never forget it. What she gave to me seemed small, but it went off like an atomic bomb in my spirit. And I was reminded again by a child that God's kingdom has broken into our world, and it is broken into dark places. Jesus is at work. And there's a movement in our world that's bringing hope and restoration and healing and new life to people. And like that little girl, I want to be a part of it. I want to give to it whatever God has placed in my hands and ask him to multiply it for his glory and the good of others. Because the universe is an open envelope.
Jesus is at work. We're invited to play a part. And he will multiply what we put in his hands. So what is in your hands? I was supposed to invite the worship team up a little earlier, and so the team can come up now. Just one more thing about this story that will help transition us into a time of ministry. I mentioned earlier that John highlights Passover. He wants us to see something. And it was during a future Passover that Jesus would take bread and break it. And after giving thanks, say to his disciples, this bread is my body given for you. And in this story, the verb rendered as gave thanks in verse 11 is eucharisto, which means thanksgiving. But it's also where we get our word for the Eucharist or communion. In fact, in Luke's telling of this story, the feeding of the 5,000, he highlights the words take, bless, broke, and gave because all of the same words appear in the story of the Last Supper where Jesus takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to his disciples and says, this is my body broken for you. Or in other words, I am the bread of life and I will fulfill your spiritual hunger. He says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the unique glory of Jesus. This sign points toward that through my broken body and shed blood, through my death and resurrection, you will find sustenance for your soul in relationship with God. And we will receive bread from heaven, the bread of life, through Jesus at his table. And his one act of love and sacrifice will be multiplied many times over in the lives of people who experience hope and restoration and new life in coming to him.